Hey everybody, this is our DOLW podcast, and we are in, uh, this is September the 14th, and this is DOLW podcast 45, Randy Engel, Inside the Right of Sodomy, page 840, we pick up here, Archbishop Thomas Kelly settles lawsuits. I want to think. I want you to think about this overarching. This is Cardinal Mueller says the gay lobby in the church destroys doctrine and people. So uh, you be the judge. We just present to you Randy Engel's 17-year effort, and you decide. Archbishop Thomas C. Kelly settles lawsuits on June the 10th, 2003, almost one year to the day the Holy Father accepted Bishop Williams' resignation. The Archdiocese of Louisville agreed to settle. 243 sexual abuse lawsuits against more than three dozen priests, religious, and church employees for a staggering $25.7 million. The settlement included three lawsuits filed by Bennett, Hall, and Probus. According to Peter Smith, reporter of the Lexington Courier-Journal, although the specific payment to each abuse victim was not revealed, the payments ranged from $20,000 to $218,810, based on the age of the victim, type and frequency of abuse, and other factors. At a scheduled press conference, Archbishop Kelly again apologized to all the victims, stating, no child should ever have to experience what happened to you. I promise that we are doing everything we can to prevent child abuse in the church. I apologize again for what we did or what we failed to do that led to your abuse. I hope that today's settlement is seen as a sign of our willingness to support you in your healing said Archbishop Kelly. Archbishop Kelly has much more soul-searching to do. In a sworn deposition given by Brian Reynolds, the Archdiocese Chief Administrative Officer and Primary Architect of the Archdiocese of Louisville's 1993 policy on clerical sex abuse, Reynolds said that the Archbishop Kelly never told him about previous allegations of abuse by priests and church employees of the Archdiocese. Reynolds stated under oath that he was unaware that Kentucky had no statute of limitations for prosecuting felonies. This meant that clerical crimes committed decades before were prosecutable. Attorney McMurray stated that the Archbishop routinely covered up for and moved major clerical sex offenders from parish to parish. Then there is the matter of the growth of the clerical homosexual network under Archbishop Kelly, who is known from coast to coast as one of the members of the American hierarchy most amiable to the homosexual collective. Moreover, Archbishop Kelly was responsible for the Williams appointment as an auxiliary of Louisville and later bishop of the newly created Diocese of Lexington. Williams was working in the Louisville Chancery when sexual predator Reverend Thomas Cray was assaulting his umpteenth boy. Williams assisted Archbishop Kelly in the cover-up of this crime. Archbishop Kelly personifies the bureaucratic prelate of Am Church. Born in Rochester, New York in 1931, Kelly entered the Dominican Order in 1951. He was ordained a priest in 1958 and went on to obtain a degree, a degree in theology from the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., and a doctorate in canon law from the University of St. Thomas in Rome with additional studies at the University of Vienna and Cambridge University. In 1962, he served as secretary in the St. Joseph Province for the Dominican Order and also worked for the Tribunal of the Archdiocese of New York under Cardinal Spellman. Archbishop Kelly began his ecclesiastical career in 1965 when he became a secretary in archivist to the powerful Archbishop Jean Jadot, 
the apostolic delegate in Washington, D.C. In 1971, Kelly became an associate general secretary for the NCCB, USCC. And in March 1977, he became general secretary of the Bishops' Conference. Four months later, Pope Paul VI made Kelly Auxiliary Bishop of Washington, D.C. The ceremony took place on August the 15th at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception with three, hierarch three hierarchical malfeasance officiating. Archbishop Bernadine of, C of Cincinnati, a homosexual, assisted by Archbishop by Bishop James S. Roche, another homosexual, and titular Bishop of Walla Walla, Eugene A. Marino, the future Archbishop of Atlanta, whose two-year affair with Miss Vicki Long ended with his resignation in July the 10th, 1990. On February the 18th, 1982, Kelly was rewarded for years of service and loyalty to Amchurch with the Archdiocese of Louisville. In the Homosexual Network, Father Ruida mentions Kelly in connection with pro-homosexual political action involving dignity and the NCCB slash USCC when he, Kelly, was serving as General Secretary. On May 27, 1989, when the defenders of the pro-homosexual uh, Sister Jean Gramic and Father Edward Robert Nugent of New Ways Ministry drew up a list of hierarchical candidates for the Mida Commission investigating the duel, Archbishop Thomas C. Kelly headed their list. In April 2003, an unsuccessful petition drive was initiated by advocates for sex abuse victims of the Archdiocese of Louisville to force Archbishop Kelly's resignation. The move followed the revelation that Kelly had pro protected and uh, cosseted a serial predator, Reverend Thomas Cray, and had moved the, par uh, moved the priest from parish to parish where he had unlimited access to children, his overwhelming preference being adolescent boys. The petition contend cont uh, contended that Archbishop Kelly participated in the denial and cover-up within the Louisville Archdiocese and repeatedly put children in harm's way by exposing them to known abusers. Archbishop Kelly knew about Father Cray's criminal record as early as March 1983, but he waited 19 long years before permanently bar 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 barring the priest from ministry. On December the 13th, 2002, Pope John Paul II appointed Reverend Ronald W. Gaynor of the Diocese of Allentown as the new Bishop of Lexington. Bishop Gaynor was ordained by Archbishop Kelly at the Cathedral of Christ the King on February the 22nd, 2003. In his homily, Bishop Gaynor promised a new beginning for the Diocese of Lexington. Archbishop Kelly assured Catholics that Gaynor is a perfect fit for the diocese. He'll have a freshness of style and personality, said Kelly. We're reading from volume four of the right, uh, the, I'll write a side of homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel. You can get that at New Engel Publishing, I believe, dot com. Just Google that. Let's continue. We're at page 842. Bishop Joseph Hart, Diocese of Cheyenne. Joseph Hubert Hart. Remember, these. Uh, wh why we're doing this, we have Cardinal Mueller telling us the destruction of doctrine and the destruction of community occurs. Uh, and these facts matter that we're talking about because they drive an agenda, the culture of death. So keep that in mind as we're, we're going over this and uh, trying to sanctify the church. Bishop Joseph H. Dress the Church in Holiness. Bishop Joseph H. Hart, Diocese of Cheyenne. 
Joseph Hubert Hart was born on September the 26th, 1931 in Kansas City, Missouri to Hubert and Catherine Muser Hart. He has one sister and a brother, also a priest of the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. He attended parochial grade school and high school and in 1948 went to Rockers College. He attended St. John's Seminary in Kansas City for a short while before changing to St. Meinrad Seminary in Indiana, where he completed his training for the priesthood. Father Joseph Hart was ordained on May the 1st, 1956 for the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Missouri, where he served as a priest in, in a number of parishes and then joined the chantry staff. His ordination as an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne took place on August the 31st, 1976. Bishop Hubert Newell officiated and Bishop Charles Helmsing and Bishop Michael McAuliffe, cited earlier in the connection with the cover-up of Bishop Anthony O'Connell, assisted as co-consecrators. His appointment as Bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne, Wyoming, came on uh, April the 25th, 1978, and his installation took place on June the 12th, 1978, at St. Mary's Cathedral. As the Bishop of Cheyenne, for more than two decades, he served on the all-important NCCB Administrative Board and represented Region 13 for six years. He also served on the NCCB Committee for Priestly Life and Ministry. Bishop Hart was a member of Conception Seminary College's Board of Regents from 1979 to 1984. He ordained 25 priests during his term as the Ordinary of the Diocese of Cheyenne. First civil suit filed against Bishop Hart. On January the 21st, 2004, a 210-page, 75-count civil suit was filed in the Circuit Court of Jackson County, Missouri, by attorney Rebecca Randalls on behalf of nine alleged abuse victims, three named and six anonymous. The accused were Bishop Hart of the Diocese of Cheyenne and two other priests who served together with Hart in local parishes in the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Louis, St. Joseph, Missouri. From the late 1960s on, Bishop Hart has pleaded innocent to the charges made against him. It was not the first time that Bishop Hart has been implicated in the sexual assault of minors, nor the first time he has denied such charges. The first molestation charge against Hart was made in 1989 and repeated in 1992. His accuser, age 40, who preferred to remain anonymous, to protect his family, told Kansas City St. Joseph Diocesan officials that he was molested by Father Hart in 1969 when he was a 6th or 7th grade student at St. Regis Parish. The alleged victim said that he was sitting on a couch in the television room of the rectory when Pastor Hart came over to him and began to engage in some horseplay. He said Hart started to move his hand down, unbutton the boy's jeans, and tried to unzip his pants, all the while laughing and saying it was okay. The man said he had managed to escape from Hart and went home confused and frightened. He told no one about the, about the uh, incident. About a week or two later, Hart and the boy met in a hallway at school. The man reported that Hart grabbed him and said, You're a troublemaker. Nobody's going to believe you. Initially, the alleged victim told his story to Vicar General Norman Rotert, who put him in touch with a nun, psychologist for counseling for... This is the victim put into counseling for one year period. The Kansas City St. Joseph Diocese picked up the tab for the therapy. In 1993, Rotert met again with the victim who was going through a divorce and <coughs> fallen on hard times. Rotert told him that Bishop Hart had denied the charges against him. But 
but even so, the diocese was willing to help him out. The help the diocese offered him offered took the form of a black Chevy extended cab truck with the diocese paying 12100 and the victim paying the balance of $2,556. In return, the victim signed a document of confidentiality stating he would seek no further compensation from the diocese. The diocese also stopped paying for the man's therapy. <coughs> Hart, who claimed he was innocent of the charge against him, gave a different version of the affair. He said that in 1989, the same individual came to Kansas City, St. Joseph Diocese, and demanded money for the alleged abuse. Hart said that the diocesan officials looked into the charges and determined that they were not credible. <coughs> However, in 1992, when another charge of sex abuse was made against Hart, apparently the diocese had a change of heart and decided to pay the victim off with a truck in exchange for the silence. The second case involving Bishop Hart and a 14-year-old boy, Kevin Hunter, was first reported in 1992, three years after the young man died. The Hunter family first met Father Hart when he received his first appointment in 1956 as associate pastor of Guardian Angels Parish in Westport in the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. Kevin's mother, Stella Hunter, had worked for the church for three decades. The alleged grooming of the victim was said to have taken place over a period of years. Father Hart remained at Guardian Angel Angels from 1956 to 1962 and then was transferred to Visitation Parish in Kansas City from 1962 to 1966. In 1964, he was made vic Vice Chancellor of the Diocese but continued to assist in other parishes until his appointment as Pastor of St. John Francis uh, Regis Church in Kansas City in 1969. Hart also acquired teaching experience at Bishop Lilas High School and Lorette Academy and worked with mentally disabled children at St. Pius X School for special education in Kansas City. In 1971, Pastor Hart, who had become a close friend of the Hunter family, took their teenage son Kevin on a summer vacation to the Midwest. The Hunters reported that after Kevin returned home, he was a different boy. His life became entangled in the world of drug abuse that contributed to his early death in 1989. However, while Kevin Hunter's life was rapidly spiraling downward, Father Hart's career had taken off. On July the 1st, 1976, Pope Paul VI appointed Hart an auxiliary bishop of the Diocese of Cheyenne, Wyoming, under Bishop Hubert M. Newell, who was due to retire in two years. Auxiliary Bishop Hart became Vicar General of the Diocese of Cheyenne that included the entire state of Wyoming and the pastor of St. Patrick's Church in Casper, where the diocese maintained some of its offices. When Bishop Newell stepped down, Joseph Hart became the sixth bishop of Cheyenne. Kevin Hunter did not reveal his dark secret to his parents until the 1980s. It was not until 1992, three years after they had buried their son, that they contacted the Diocese of Kansas City St. Joseph to inform them of the sexual assault of Kevin by Hart in order to prevent the priest, now Bishop of Cheyenne, from abusing other young boys. The Hunters did not seek a financial settlement, nor was a lawsuit a consideration at the time. Two of Kevin's married sisters, however, did take the advantage of the IC's offer for psychological therapy. That cost more than $17,000 over a two-year period. Vicar General Norman Rotert and Chancellor Richard Carney handled the matter for the ordinary of Kansas City St. Joseph, Bishop Joseph, Bishop John Joseph Sullivan. Both the Papal Nuncio of the United States and the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops were notified of the Hunter allegation but no law enforcement agency was contacted by either party. 
Meanwhile, Bishop, meanwhile, Bishop Hart and the diocesan officials in Cheyenne were alerted that, uh, that the hunters were engaged in a series of meetings with the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. Hart, for his part, categorically and completely denied any improper conduct with the alleged victim. The allegation is baseless, he said. Nevertheless, in 1993, Hart volunteered to check himself in for a psychiatric evaluation at Sierra Tucson in Tucson, Arizona, a secular residential institution specializing in alcoholism. After a one-month evaluation, Hart returned to his bishop's post in Cheyenne and carried on as if nothing had happened. His activities were never monitored. The whole affair was deep-sixed. The Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, advised the hunters that doctors at the facility had certified that the 60-year-old bishop no longer posed a threat to himself or others. Diocesan officials made it clear that providing money for counseling was not tantamount to an admission of guilt. And uh, we have now the victim seek legal address. So again, remember, we're talking about a lobby. We're talking about the destruction of community and doctrine. <clears throat> Victims seek legal redress. In April 2002, the two above allegations of sexual molestation by Hart were made public by St. Paul attorney Patrick Noaker. Noaker also claimed that a third anonymous victim had come forward one month later and was seeking legal representation with another attorney, Jeffrey Anderson, also Minnesota. The nature of the third claim against Hart was different from the other two alleged cases because it involved voyeurism, sexual acts rather than voyeuristic sexual acts rather than physical abuse and because it occurred in the Diocese of Cheyenne shortly after Hart had, made, had been made an auxiliary bishop in August 1976. The third victim, who, who was 14 at the time of the incident, said he had regular contact with Hart because his mother had been given a job at the church after his father abandoned the family. <clears throat> he said he had also earned some money by doing chores at Hart's residence. As a boy, the alleged third victim said Hart would always find an excuse to, for him to get naked. It was a very voyeuristic thing, he said. He said that as part of his confession to Hart, he was told to touch his genitals. Hart had him show what I did when I was, had impure thoughts. He balked. Hart would remind him of how his father abandoned the family and how the church gave his mother a job. The man said that Hart took him in him out on an out of town took him on out of town trips including one of the out of state trip to Kansas City Missouri the bishop's birthplace during these travels the victim said he shared a bed with Hart although the man recalled no incidents of actual physical contact with Hart he remembered that the bishop insisted on watching him when he changed into his bathing suit because of that I haven't owned a bathing suit in 25 years the man said I just have this sense of dread about them the man's therapist, the social worker, Linda Ford Blakey, said the victim sought counseling from her after a traumatic non-sexual assault, and she believed his story to be credible. The Cheyenne Police Department said that they knew of the 1977 incident because a male relative of the man had reported the case to them a year earlier, but at the time the victim would not cooperate in the investigation, and charges were dropped for lack of evidence. Hart again denied the charges against him. <clears throat> lawsuit against Hart still pending. In the lawsuit filed in January of 2004, Hart is portrayed as a member of a small paterist ring operating in Kansas City, Missouri.
from the 1960s to the 1980s. The alleged members include Hart and two other area priests, Monsignor Thomas J. O'Brien, now 77, and Reverend Thomas Reardon, now 62, who resigned in April 1989. Also named in the lawsuit are the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, its ordinary Bishop Raymond J. Bolin, who has uh, who was implicated in the Bishop Anthony O'Connell scandal, and Reverend Patrick Rush, Vicar General of the Diocese. The latter are charged with failure to monitor the actions of their diocesan priests. The Diocese of Cheyenne is not mentioned in the lawsuit. <clears throat> in examining the past records of Hart, O'Brien, and Reardon, it is clear that they put themselves in a position to be near young boys. Hart's association with a school for mentally handicapped children early in his clerical career is especially disturbing. Monsignor O'Brien served as principal of St. Pius X High School and diocesan superintendent of schools before being made chaplain of St. Joseph's Health Center. Father Reardon served in five Kansas City parishes, including St. John, Francis Regis Church, where Hart had formerly served as pastor. Reardon also administered the Camp uh, Little Flower, the Camp Little Flower in Raytown, which provided educational camping for children 7 through 12. The Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, was aware that Reardon had a problem with young boys, as a fellow priest had reported him to diocesan officials in the 1980s. According to Vice Chancellor Rush, Reardon had been treated for multiple addictions, including sexual addiction, but he, Rush, said that the records did not indicate whether or not sex abuse charges were the reasons he resigned. Three of the nine plaintiffs have accused Hart of sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. Michael Hunter is representing his deceased brother, Kevin. He is not seeking financial damages. The other's charged charges against Hart include inappropriate acts while he was a parish priest in Kansas City, including provisions of alcohol to minors. The two other named plaintiffs are Ronald Garrens, who charged both O'Brien and Reardon with sexual abuse, and Jack Stuckenschneider, who named O'Brien as his abuser. Of the nine named and anonymous accusers, Reardon is accused by six now-grown men, O'Brien by five, and Hart by three. Many of the alleged incidents were reported to have taken place in a cabin that O'Brien purchased in 1971 at Lake Viking, north of Kansas City. <clears throat> the lawsuit charges that the priests supplied liquor and pot for young boys when they boated and partied at the lakeside cabin. Diocesan officials were said to be aware that the priests entertained underage boys in their rooms at the rectory and supplied them with alcohol. The lawsuit charges that at St. At St. Elizabeth's Parish, O'Brien gave pot to a boy, showed him pornographic movies, and had sex with other boys in front of one of the plaintiffs. All the victims have been well vetted and groomed for homosex by the three priests. One plaintiff said he overheard Father Hart arguing with one of the other priests as to who was going to get a particular boy for the weekend. In reaction to the latest set of sexual abuse charges to hit the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, Vicar General Patrick Rush said that the diocese had already investigated the charges against Hart and filed that information with the Ad Hoc Committee on Sexual Abuse of the NCCB. Rush categorically denied the diocese was engaged in a cover-up. At this time, Hart was reported to be on sabbatical somewhere in California. He maintained two attorneys, one from the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph, and one from the Diocese of Cheyenne. On March the 20th, 2004, Jackson County Circuit uh, Court Judge J.D. Williamson Jr. was asked by Attorney Randalls to overturn his earlier decision of February the 25th, 2004. 
prohibiting the plaintiffs in the case from using pseudonames to hide their real identity. Three days later, diocesan attorneys filed a lawsuit to dismiss the case against the diocese. Bishop Bolin and the three defendants on the basis that the charges are too vague and have not included pertinent information such as specific dates when the alleged incidents were, are said to have occurred. They also charged that Bishop Hart's name was added as an incidental to magnify the case against the other two priests. Bishop Ricken defends Hart. Bishop David Ricken, the new ordinary of the Diocese of Cheyenne, who has called Hart his friend and mentor, has offered continued, continued prayers to support and support for Hart. A canon lawyer, Ricken said, after discussing the, this char, this, the charges with Bishop Hart, I am confident that he is telling the truth, and he has my complete support. A native of Dodge City, Kansas, Bishop Ricken studied at the Pontifical College Josephium in Worthington, Ohio. After graduation from Conception Seminary College in Missouri in 1974, he went on to the American College at the University of Louvain, Belgium. He was ordained a priest at the Diocese of Pueblo, Colorado on March, the, September the 12th, 1980, after which he returned to the Greg in Rome, where he learned, earned a licensure in canon law and a doctorate in sacred theology. Bishop Ricken was vice chancellor of Pueblo from 1985 to 1987, director of vocations from 1989 to 1996, Episcopal vicar for ministry formation, 1989 to 1992, director of deacons, 1990 to 1995, and chancellor from 1992 to 1996, when he was assigned to the Congregation for the Clergy in Rome. He was serving as an official of the congregation when he was named coadjutor Bishop of Cheyenne on December the 14th, 1999. He was ordained by Bishop, a bishop by Pope John Paul II at St. Peter's Basilica on January the 6th, 2000. Like so many American bishops, he was never a pastor. As for Bishop Hart, before disappearing from the Cheyenne scene, retired Bishop Hart told the press that he was innocent. He was as innocent of the charges of sexual abuse leveled against him as Cardinal Bernardine was. Today in my retirement, these unfounded accusations have caused me great pain. They caused me great embarrassment, even in my innocence. You may recall that in 1993, the late Cardinal Joseph Bernardine of Chicago was wrongfully accused of sexual misconduct. The Cardinal's accusers later, accuser later recanted, and the Cardinal, showing the example of Christ to the world, not only forgave his accuser, but ministered to him up until the time of the young man's own tragic death. In the meantime, while lawyers for the Bishop for Bishop Hart and Fathers Reardon and O'Brien and the Diocese of Kansas City St. Joseph continued to plead their case plead their case, while Bishop Rickens pleads for prayers for Bishop Hart, and while Bishop Emeritus Hart pleads his innocence. Attorney Randalls has reported that since the initial January two thousand four filing, more victims have come forward, twenty against the three defendants, including three specifically against Hart. We're at page 849. We've gone almost 10 pages. We have Bishop coming up, Bishop Ruger of the Diocese of Worcester. And that's going to be its own uh, own read for about another 10 pages. So I'm going to conclude there. And again, <clears throat> what, uh, what struck me as odd is that this author uh, has never been discussed openly by anyone and never been confronted openly by anyone to say uh, that she's a liar or we gonna, we're going to um, 
we're going to challenge her. None of that. And I stumbled across this, this material. And people in my life asked me where to give donations at. How do we uh, sanctify the church? If holiness really is the most important thing in the church, be holy is more important than being a bishop, even a bishop of Rome. And what are our responsibilities? So, so I'd encourage you to check out our companion podcast, DOLW3, and uh, Therese there is doing a very good podcast on the, on the church's teaching, what to believe, and she's citing some sources, John Paul too, the church sources, uh, uh, and Archbishop O.V. Cruz, it's got some very good, interesting, uh, very good material that is richly sourced in the, into the, in the, from the mindset of the church about our responsibilities. All I'm doing here is responding to those who have chosen to leave the Catholic Church. I'm submitting all that I have in these podcasts to the judgment of the church. And I'm saying, use your voice. Ask questions. And what we covered today were some people just denying outright uh, uh, just absolute outright denials. I've seen that. I've seen, I've witnessed wrong in the church and I've seen it and I've heard reports where they, they do. These are behaviors that, that are consistent with what I've seen and the victim is often attacked. The victim is isolated, cold-shouldered and it's just, you know, I hope it never happens to you but that's what motivates our efforts here to speak truth to darkness speak truth to chaos so that we have order and light because uh, once you these poor folks that go through this and these men uh, most recently there was a on church militant there was a video or an interview of these men who were told in seminary that uh, they they're aware of things and they're told shut up or you won't get ordained can you believe that to be called to be a priest and then to be forced to build your entire priesthood on a falsehood. You know, clergy are called to proclaim the truth. They're called to proclaim truth, and they, they, they are, they're uh, ministers of the truth. And they have to build, they have to set out in that ministry on false maps with a false compass, meaning they, they're actually told, don't speak the truth. If you speak the truth about what you've witnessed, about... Uh, the destruction of church, uh, the, of what you witnessed about homosexuality in the church, sexual assaults. You won't be ordained. If you don't shut up, you won't be ordained. That's the quote. And so I leave you with the thought on Cardinal Mueller, the gay lobby in the church destroys doctrine and people. And Google that and see, you know, see, uh, and talk to your own clergy and ask them, you know, what have you seen by way of destruction? Uh, there is a communist lobby. Bella Dodd t- tells us that. There is a homosexual lobby. There is a sexually active uh, heterosexual lobby. And we as laity coming, coming up into the third millennium are being told that we have a responsibility to speak out. We are told that we are, have equal dignity in both our essence and our operations. And we are told that the clergy are in persona Christi per capita. And that's a, an important distinction in persona Christi. I've run across people that say that each priest is a, is, is a God, is a Christ, and that's clericalism. I don't think the church has ever taught that. And I, I, and I invite comments. I invite people to challenge me, uh, challenge Cardinal Mueller to say he's wrong. And so what I'm saying is if you tell as a clergy or staff that 
you tell me that you're in persona Christi, that's one thing. But if the church actually teaches you're in persona Christi per capita, that's a different thing. Meaning you're, you participate in the one priest of Jesus Christ. This is the truth now. In persona Christi is that you stand, you are Christ. And meaning there's no, you do whatever you want. And there can't be any challenges. You can tell people to take their clothes off, get in bed, and, and you're commanding them as if you were God. That's not their role at all. From what I understand, the church teaches they're in persona Christi per capita. One priesthood, and that's Jesus Christ. Clergy participate in that priesthood. We all participate in that priesthood through baptism. And they act in persona Christi per capita. They can't act contrary to the nature of God. That means God is intelligible. They have to act intelligible. They can't ask you to climb up uh, on top of your roof, chirp like a bird, and jump off. And, say, and they're saying, listen, I'm acting in persona Christi. Do that. Because God is intelligible, he never acts contrary to his nature. So that's why when you put that in persona Christi per capita, that puts some accountability there. They can't tell you to, you know, uh, there was a convent I remember as growing up that was reported in Africa that all the women in that convent were pregnant. And, and the priest was, uh, my, rec my memory could be fading here, but the priest was, uh, was powerful priest and presumably telling them, I'm God and this is what you're going to do. Just disgusting. And so God is intelligible. And uh, so we act intelligible. You can ask the priest to command, uh, if you're in persona Christi, command plum trees to give puppies. They don't. They Plum trees produce plums. Ask the bishop to command flames of a fire to lay low and not jump up to heaven. Remember, he can't. That's natural law. We were made a certain way. We were made by the Father. Christ come to serve the Father's will. And so anything that that bishop or priest does is, is scaffolded around the will of the Father. And that's why we have this natural law. Law is important. And we ride for the Carmel brand. We start with the, uh, uh, with the Trinity. And you look at the, and there's a beautiful painting by John of the, uh, that depicts John of the Cross's lined pencil, uh, a pencil drawing of the crucifixion from the point of view of God the Father upon his son. Up till that time in history, uh, art has depicted the crucifixion from the standpoint of creation, man looking up at the crucifixion. So God has, a God the Father has to say so in this. And so remember that uh, these men are destroying community and destroying people, uh, destroying doctrine, and you can challenge them, and you're supposed to challenge them. If that's false, uh, then, then tell me. Tell me in the comments. Tell me that we got a website, we have a podcast, we have a, a, a fledgling YouTube channel, we've got Facebook, and uh, so we're, we are voicing, we're being a voice, and we're talking, and we're asking, and the, what the reception so far is, if you catch them, see they have presumed, I think Vigano, Cardinal Vigano said, they have presumed credibility, so if you catch a clergy, a bishop, or somebody in a lie, my experience is they just walk away. They don't, they don't want to argue because they, can, they can't gain anything. They just walk away, and then, if anything, if you're dealing with, with uh, a person of authority, they would rather destroy you than, and they know they can get away with that because they have presumed credibility. So they, they have many ways to make you suffer, and, and they will. And so uh, we are talking to you who have left the church or are thinking about leaving the church. Don't. Stay. We've stayed. We've suffered collectively, collectively 
in our watcher group in our diocese, uh, uh, in, in, in the Lansing Diocese, the same thing that other people have suffered. Any number of, of uh, 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 collectively, we've got it here, and we're not leaving. We're staying, and uh, we're talking, and we ask questions, just constantly ask questions, challenge, write letters. And you're getting, we get at the conscience of the people. There's a lot of good clergy. And because they have failed to do things or they can't do things, uh, it affects their conscience, you know. And so uh, we have people say, well, you know, they know the other person's wrong, but they'll say, go gentle. Well, go gentle. How gentle was Jesus Christ with the money changers? You mean go, you know, how gentle was God, the Father, with Eli, Phineas, and Hotney? In the Old Testament, people who have lost the, the Ark of the Covenant, lost God. Leadership, clergy, leadership have lost a lot, and it impacts the poor, the, the small, you and me. So you have Eli in the Old Testament. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? Remember there was a whole story about that and uh, a movie on that and... Uh, famous actors going after that Ark of the Covenant that was lost because the priests uh, took it in, they disobeyed God. And so you got Eli and his two sons. Eli was indifferent. His two sons were fornicators. They were stealing food from the temple. They were bad guys. So keep that in mind. And we've got Ahab and Jezebel. And we've got Elijah coming in, having to deal with the, uh, the priests of Baal. So there's a long history uh, of denouncing evil. And I think the clergy can grow in, in that. They have not denounced evil enough. And they don't know how. And you have Thomas Aquinas that says you've got, you know, you got three approaches. You have your subordinates, your equals, and your superiors. And he talks about how to correct each one of them. And uh, there's disciplinary ministry on errant members of the clergy. You ever hear about that? You ever get invited to that? Everybody wants to be a Eucharistic minister. Well, how do we be a... Uh, a disciplinary ministry on errant members of the clergy. How do I file papers in the church court? How do I appeal? They don't talk about that. And and you get a lot of doom and gloom from the press and and they and they want to represent you and me. They want to be the voice, but they maybe they could do better by teaching you how to have your own voice, how to file a claim in the church, how to take it up. Even if you lose, you're challenging them. You're letting them know. You're building an ark like Noah, in the desert, and people are saying, look, that's a useless act. Why are you doing it? It'll happen. You you speak truth, and it has an impact. You speak truth. Jordan Peterson, a psychologist, says, you speak truth, clean up your room, meaning our diocese, meaning our parish. It will have an impact in the future. And uh, so uh, a lot of people have, we're getting requests on help with, one, being a little bit more focused, and uh, maybe being a whole lot more focused uh, and also being uh, helping people think things through, not just giving them facts or commentary. We've got, let me just give you an update on what we're doing and we're gaining function. We've got four websites, never done a website, learning how to do websites, got four going. We've got th three podcasts. Uh, we've got uh, two or three Facebook pages that are active but we've got a lot of that are sitting there on the shelf uh, it's like manuscripts of a book not quite you haven't published them yet got that we've got books that we've published and, and we're nobody we just stumbled in this and we're saying you know this is nuts this common sense tells you that the clergy and our parishes 
the staff in our parishes have done wrong, and they, they can't be doing this, and nobody wants to challenge them. Nobody, I don't know what it is. They don't know how to do it. They, they're fearful that they'll go to hell if they do it, and we're getting no, no, no help. We got a canon law club that we started. So even though you can go through the, ch the church court, and uh, it's not, it lacks a lot of capacity. Uh, we might say the diocesan, diocesan structures have atrophied, and they're more like a lethargic guardians. They're not, they're not on their game. Um, we're not going to leave the church. We're not going to leave it at all. Let them leave the church. So I encourage you, if you've left, because you've seen it, we've seen it too. You've seen indifference. Francis talks about these people doing the stuff to you and me as being murder. Your parish priest ever tell you how to document that? Oh, no. Francis teaches that. Francis teaches about how uh, uh, a lot of accountability, how uh, clergy shouldn't be having luxury cars. Get rid of them. That, uh, that it, it, to abuse a child, he's expanded. Not only a vulnerable adult, a vulnerable person. We've seen that. And so uh, cold shouldering, where you, we've, oh, just cold shouldering constantly if there's a problem and you don't fit in because you ask questions and you try to, you, these people who, who clergy and staff are used to having super credibility. I can't believe it. You, you, some of the church documents call them slaves, meaning they're to, be, they're to be servants, and they're anything but that. Anything but that. It's a great vocation if you don't want transparency and you don't want accountability and you want a lot of authority and you want presumed authority, credibility, and you want to be in the front of the crowd getting getting patted on the back. They're thinking, oh, my God, what a burden of life. The burdens they're talking about, when you get down to it, are the same burdens. They're common burdens of anybody else. They're nothing extraordinary. And... Uh, they, now they have to put up with jokes. Well, there were lawyer jokes. There were Polish jokes. There were all kinds of jokes that people have to put up with. So uh, they have a little burden in life. They were looking for an easy life. I grew up with the idea that clergy were giving up sex. They were going to live. They were, com they were committing their life to a, to a higher ordered reality, giving up sex. They were giving up luxuries, you know, living poverty. And they were going to live a life close to the cross and suffer. So they weren't out there seeking, seeking their own pleasure, their own way in life, and anything but that. Here I find out they're living, they're having all the sex they want, homosexual, heterosexual. They have all the sex they want. They have luxury. They have health care. This is in the United States. Uh, they're assured of a job, health care, and food. They're never going to go hungry. they got a roof over their head. You know, and totally the opposite of the persona. And then now, and then they start to whine because they have to get up in the middle of the night and, and give somebody an anointing. They just, they won't do it. And uh, so, and now we're restructuring. We're focusing on clergy and we're focusing on priests and properties, how to, how to restructure them because 20% of our diocesan population left in a five-year period here. And it was projected to repeat itself. So I don't know where we're at because they don't want to talk about that. That that was reported out by some experts in the diocese and get, gets reported out. No talks about that. And so if you're married and your spouse and you've got five kids and your spouse goes to the mall and comes back with four, you just lost 20 percent and just acts like it's nothing. Oh, honey, maybe if I have a better car, I won't lose any more property and priests focus on the property. Restructures that. 
And you know, uh, family, if I get paid a look, you know what, we're going to take all your allowances and we're going to let daddy live the way he wants to live and you're, you're going to be happy because daddy's happy. What's that all about? Ludicrous. And uh, it's logic from hell. You've got to learn to use your voice. Just simply question. Withhold your money if you're not sure. You know, using your money for using my money for sordid affairs, that's disgusting. And when they, they destroy the, uh, even the masses, we've got persons that stop. We've got one priest that stops in the middle of masses. Oh, this is the good part. Oh, how I would love to say, listen, you, know, you can challenge that. But there's better yet. Petition the bishop and say, listen, let's, we've discovered something. We've discovered a private mass of this priest. When they do the collection, I'd like to stop the mass and say, this is the good part. I'm going to put an IOU in here, and I encourage you to. I want to participate in that mass. They're not expecting that. They're expecting you to get pissed and leave. Don't do it. Uh, we'll show you how. We've got a lot of different ways to do that. Okay? Just all kinds of things that you can do that I'm being encouraged to talk more about. Okay? I wish you well. Keep us in your thoughts and prayers. And in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.